thank you for that great promise that those who are truly yours, who have experienced that work of life-giving power by the Holy Spirit, have been regenerated, have been granted the gift of faith, have been united to Christ by that faith, to share an eternal life, your own life, are kept and secure. Though we stumble and fall, we'll never, we're never hurled headlong. Though we fail and our sins are many, even after coming to Christ. And yet we are kept by your faithful word. We are kept by your promise. We are kept because of the finished work of Christ, who has died, satisfied divine justice, both in its requirements for obedience and its penalty for sin. You have defeated death on our behalf and risen from the grave and given us the promise of your return so that we can know that we who belong to you will see you, will be raised on that last day and will be with you forever and ever in that eternal kingdom, forever delighting and living under and in your glory. That is the hope of our hearts, and we pray that you would increase that hope in us. And even this morning as we look at your word in Psalm 32 and hear a testimony of that grace in the life of one of your own. So to the end that we might praise and worship you and be encouraged to a life of faith, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Psalm 32, as you may know, Psalm 32 is in all likelihood pretty pretty commonly accepted at the the further response to David's repentance, the other side of that repentance that we looked at in Psalm 51, namely the, the joy that comes from having experienced the forgiveness that his heart cried out for in Psalm 51 as he confessed his sin. Let me introduce it this way, is by reminding us that everybody wants joy. That is a natural human thing. That's actually be a reflection of being made in the image of God, that we want happiness and that we want joy. There's nothing sinful about that. The sin comes in in how we pursue that joy and the reason that we want that joy and where we try to find that joy. But wanting joy and wanting happiness is part of being made in the image of God. God made a world in order for humanity to flourish in order to humanity to experience ongoing happiness, which the redeemed will in heaven, which God always has within his own relationship within himself, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So happiness is a good thing. Joy is a good thing. Uh, the problem is, of course, that the world seeks this in ways that are corrupted by sin, seeks it selfishly, seeks it in the things that God has created rather than in God himself. We have, particularly in our age, not that this is anything new in and of itself, maybe it's just taken on a, a new life uh, in our contemporary context, but the whole media age is driven to that. It is to, it is to present to humanity a way to find a constant source of pleasure. Everything at your fingertips that you want, entertainment, uh, any kind of entertainment all the time, everything you want to relax, to find pleasure, to find happiness. Of course, we know that's a lie for many reasons, but very simply, that with the advent of that kind of access, we are the most miserable people, the most depressed and sad and unhappy people uh, ever in, uh, in, the hi- in the history of humanity in, in many ways. 
as a culture who has been blessed with so much, we, we have so little happiness. Sometimes we think that happiness will be in an idealistic relationship with no problems, whether it will be acquiring more wealth, whether it will be acquiring more uh, friendships, whether it will be acquiring more power, whether it will be acquiring more education. Whatever it is, it is the idea that happiness comes by acquiring and getting more of this world. And yet that's a futile pursuit because the more we pursue and the more we get, the more we find that there's really nothing there. It was a false promise. It doesn't contain what our soul looks for. By contrast, happiness from a Christian perspective is not grounded in the shifting circumstances of life, the wealth that God tells us can come easily but can be taken away just as easily. It's not found in the uncertain events of life, but in this, the unchanging reality of a relationship with God in Christ and through Christ. It is participating in that unchanging and certain and grounded covenant that God has made with a people in Christ who has filled all the conditions for us so that we could know the joy of forgiveness. One person described happiness this way, true happiness is the disposition of a righteous life centered in a relationship with God that permits one to enjoy happiness as a state of well-being. In other words, true happiness is a part of knowing that we belong to God and walking in relationship with Him. Jesus said the same thing. Actually, he's reflecting David's words in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. What is true blessedness? It's poor spirit. It's, it's mourning over our sin. It's being merciful, a peacemaker, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and other things. But at the heart of that is you are blessed. Why? Because that means that you're in the kingdom of God. And that is the real source of blessedness, that you belong to God and you are a part of his kingdom. That is where real happiness lies. And that's why he said to have that knowledge secure means that you can be insulted for the name of Christ. You can be persecuted for the name of Christ, even as the prophets did before you, and still rejoice. Rejoice for your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice because that's part of the affirmation that you belong to the kingdom of God. And that means then that you are in God's saving grace. By contrast... As we noted just briefly last time with David, to live in disobedience to God's covenant, to live disobedience to Christ, is to bring profound misery and profound emptiness. It is to bring troubles to life. It is to bring inner conflict within our soul. And what the sinner, under conviction and feeling the weight of sin, wants more than anything, if it is a true burden of sin, is to be relieved of that burden. It is to be relieved of the guilt. It is to be relieved of the corruption inwardly that the sinner under conviction feels. It is to be restored to God. And this is the experience of David in Psalm 32. He felt the conviction of sin. He felt the burden that laid on him. He felt the guilt that was his own and that he acknowledged. He sought forgiveness from God on the basis of his own gracious covenant, his own extension of forgiveness to his people. And he found it. And that is the wonder of wonders. That every convicted sinner, every, everyone no matter what the sin, who comes to God with a sincere heart of seeking his grace, finds grace. He never turns away the sinner who longs for forgiveness. And therefore, we have always the hope of happiness in this world. 
the hope of restoration when we fail and when we fall. We have the hope of the grace that will sustain us to continue to live consistent with his covenant and his promises. And that's what David expresses. So we're going to try to look at the the whole psalm. Uh, I will do my best to make this one rather than two messages. But let's begin by looking, by reading it, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. So read with me, if you will, Psalm 32, as we will see the blessed wisdom of the forgiven. The blessed wisdom of the forgiven. Begins. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you. And teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. Whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's look at this in just two big parts. The first is the blessedness of the forgiven, and the next is the wisdom of the forgiven. So first, in verses 1 through 5, let's see the blessedness of the forgiven. And note simply, at first, that forgiveness brings true happiness. Forgiveness brings true happiness. In this simple opening statement, David lays down for us and establishes for us the greatest foundation of the Christian's joy, namely forgiveness. It is the foundation for all of our spiritual happiness that we are those who have been forgiven of our sin. We are those who have been acquitted of our guilt. That's behind this idea of blessedness, of blessedness. It is the blessedness that identifies and lays hold of being in a right relationship with God by His grace. It's a spiritual kind of happiness. One described it in this way. It means blessed, happy. A heightened state of happiness and joy implying very favorable circumstances often resulting from the kind acts of God. So it's a kind of happiness that we can experience in many ways that our heart responds to God's goodness. But at the base of it and at the foundation of it is to be forgiven. And there's many other ways that scripture talks about this blessedness. I won't go through all of them. But just doing a scan of the use of this term through the Old Testament. Let me give you a few ways of the situations it's used. It speaks of the one who walks wisely and righteously in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not stand in the counsel of the wicked and so forth, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It speaks in Isaiah 30 of the one who longs for God. Isaiah 32 of the one who is obedient to the covenant. 
In Psalm 2, the one who takes refuge in the Son. In Psalm 34, refuge in the Lord. In Psalm 33, it's those who live under the authority of God. In Psalm 34, those who put their total trust in the Lord. Psalm 84, those who find their strength in the Lord and those who fear him. The one who finds wisdom in Proverbs 3. The one to whom the Lord has brought near to himself to see his glory in Psalm 65. And those who are found to be his on the last day in Daniel chapter 12. Blessedness then should encompass the entire life of the believer who walks faithfully with the Lord, who trusts in him in all of the different changing circumstances of life, who is brought near to him to see his glory and to walk in fellowship with him, who has been made to know his covenant and sustained by grace to walk consistent with the righteousness of that covenant, who has confidence that even on the judgment of the last day they will be found secure in him. That is the blessed life. And note that it is all Christ or God-centered, for us, it's Christ-centered. And note that it all is the kind of joys that come from living and knowing that we are in a right relationship with God. It is a hope and a happiness that transcends this world. And that's how this word is consistently used. That's the kind of happiness that he's talking about. By contrast, the wicked are those who are blown away and the ones who will not prosper but in fact be judged. But here David said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And again, this is the greatest source then for us of spiritual happiness and joy, of inner comfort. It is the reason for praise. It is the motivation for obedience that a believer has. And particularly it is after spending time in the pit of conviction and shame before the Lord for sin. And that really is where this kind of happiness has to begin. We won't know this kind of happiness from forgiveness. And we won't know this kind of joy of being restored in a right relationship with God. Until we have first come to understand conviction of sin. It's not... It's not apart from that, it is actually in that conviction of sin, in that total acknowledging and embracing and owning our own sinfulness that we can then experience on the other side, God's forgiveness. So, it's kind of a weird way to state a point, but although our sin is comprehensive, or you could just say our sin is comprehensive, and that's what has to be grasped first. And that's what David displays here. He uses, interestingly, in these few verses, three of the main terms for sin in the Old Testament. Translated as transgression, sin, and iniquity. Those are the three primary words. Of course, the the Hebrew word's behind it. But in translation, those are the three primary words that are used. He acknowledges at the front here for what God or how God sees our sin and how the sinner owns his sin. And just to emphasize the completeness of David's ownership of that, he says at the end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is to say, the one who acknowledged his sin and withheld nothing, sugar-coated nothing, minimized nothing, but in complete transparency and honesty came before the Lord to acknowledge his sin. Let's just consider these three ways that God views our sin and that we need to see our sin. First, he says, speaks of his transgression that he came to the Lord with. It has the idea, this term of rebellion. It has the fundamental idea of a breach of relationship. 
it often carries the idea as it's used of casting off authority, of breaking away from authority. It would be kind of like that disobedient, rebellious child that when you give them instruction and they look you right in your eyes and they say, no. That's the kind of idea behind this word here. When we do that before God, we know what God's standard is and we look at him and we say, no, I'm going to do something else. It's breaking off of his authority. The second word is a word translated here as sin. That's the more common word in both the Old Testament and its New Testament equivalent that we're more familiar with. And it has the idea of missing the mark, of falling short. It's used in one way of uh, stone throwers from the tribe of Benjamin who, when they threw, they did not miss their mark. This is, uh, in the context of sin, is those who do miss the mark. Those who do fall short of God's righteousness. It's to fall short of what God requires in his law, what he requires from his people. And because the law reflects God's holiness, and because it requires absolute obedience, to fail to measure up to God's standard of righteousness is then a violation of the law. It includes both those things that are sins of omission and sins of commission, things we don't do, the things we do. Here, David is meaning it primarily in the conviction he had of the things that he actually did that fell short of what God requires for righteousness. He knew he failed to obey God's commands for purity, for faithfulness, love to neighbor, and certainly love for God. He was a lawbreaker. And, of course, this is a condition of all of us even who haven't committed the sins that David did. That's why Paul said that the law was given so that we might have a knowledge of sin, not a knowledge of how to be righteous, but a knowledge to see that we're unrighteous and should be driven to God's righteousness provided in Christ. The third word he uses here is iniquity. Iniquity. And this, this term has the idea of perverseness. It speaks of something being made crooked, a crooked way. So takes what is straight and perverts it to something else. And in it, this is an interesting term, actually, because as it's used uh, in the Old Testament particularly, it's always paired together inextricably with the idea of judgment. So the iniquity speaks of both the deed and it's always paired with the idea of the consequence of the deed. So that's, it's actually seen as one thought. The deed and the consequence. The guilt and the punishment of that guilt. One summarizes these words in this way. The first describes sin in, in, in uh, connection with our relationship with God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against him. The second word describes sin in relation to the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. The third word describes sin in relation to ourselves. It is a corruption or twisting of right standards as well as of our own beings. That is, to the degree that we indulge in sin, we become both twisted and twisting creatures. So as we already saw in Psalm 51, the beginning of this experience of what would, he would enter into forgiveness first meant that he went through the valley of humiliation and acknowledging his sin. His sin was thorough. It was complete. It, it was a part of his own person and being, which he said in Psalm 51, in sin my mother has conceived me. And he's saying... In light of this comprehensive nature of sin, there is the glory of God's forgiveness. And this is the second part under that, is that God's forgiveness is complete. Sin is complete. God's forgiveness is complete. As completely as our sin destroys us and affects us, so completely and, and graciously does God's mercy meet us when we confess and when we come to him. 
And so he says, how blessed is he who's what? Whose transgression, though is real, is forgiven by God. He has the idea of being lifted and carried away, taken away by God. Though our sin is before us, as he said in Psalm 51, it is here covered by God. It's concealed and hidden from his judgment. And though our iniquity is great, yet, he says here, it is not imputed to the one who comes to him. In other words, it will not account against us. And it is this reality of the iniquity not being imputed against us that leads us most directly to understand the very significant truth behind this that it's not imputed to us because of another. It pushes us more than any to see the work of Christ. This same term, actually, translated here as imputed, is the same term translated, we're most commonly familiar with, reckoned in Genesis 15.6. Do you remember that? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith became the vehicle through which God counted him righteous because he believed in his promises. It's also the term used to speak of what the suffering servant would bear. In Isaiah 53, I'm going to spend a little bit of time. We'll go quicker at the end, but it's important to understand this. In Psalm 53, this is the term, listen for it, as he's describing this work of this suffering servant, as we often think of it. He says this in verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now this is incredibly significant. significant. As we already saw in Psalm 51, and there's other places in the Old Testament, but we just looked at that. The, the Old Testament saint knew when they took their sacrifices to the altar, when they took the blood and the the goats and, and the different sacrifices that were prescribed by God. When they took that to the altar, they knew that an answer in the final atonement for sin never rested in that animal itself. David said that. You don't desire the blood and bulls of goats. It had in itself, by itself, no ultimate efficacy or no ultimate answer, no ultimate provision of atonement. The forgiveness that the Old Testament saint experienced was real. Their trust in what God pictured in that atoning sacrifice was real. There really was a symbolic atonement made. There really was a real faith in what that pictured that brought real forgiveness. But they knew that was never the final answer. That's why David said that. And it's said in other places as well. It is what Isaiah revealed under the inspiration of the Spirit in Isaiah 53 that was really the hope of God's people, this future, this future provision of a Messiah. And we know that that was somewhere in there because it tells us in Hebrews 11. we starting all the way with Abel and going through Moses who forsake the riches and the pleasures of Egypt because he knew there was a better hope. They knew that there was this messianic kind of hope. It was clarified as the progress of Revelation went on. But they knew that it was never those things 
that the answer for the iniquity that his people bore was yet future. This is the great reality then of justification by faith. And you say, do I make that up? No, because in fact, Paul, in explaining the righteousness of God by faith, after declaring the work of Christ, who was the propitiation for our sin, the satisfaction of all of God's righteous requirements for our sin, the sacrifice that averted and turned away the wrath of God, he, he explains this and he grounds this in those two passages I read of Abraham and what David says here in Psalm 32. Just listen. He says in verse of Romans chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 4, or actually beginning in verse 3. Actually beginning in verse uh, 1. We'll get back. Let's just start at the beginning of Romans, and we'll just read through. No, let's go back to verse 4, chapter 4. He says this. And then what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, the idea there is imputed, to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There is the idea here then of imputation, of crediting our sin to another in that context, so that the righteousness of another could be credited to us. And this is important, because the completeness of our forgiveness is not merely the result, and this is why I want to mention that. The completeness of our forgiveness is not merely the result of God just deciding to be nice. People think about it that way sometimes. That's why the gospel is so misunderstood in many cases. As though God just decides to be nice to this one and not be nice to that one. As God, like a loving fatherly grandfather, just decides for some to kind of overlook their sin and their rebellion and their iniquity. They act as though the completeness of our forgiveness is not the result of God deciding and demanding and assuring that he will uphold his justice. As he looks at the sin and the rebellion of our lives. This is the importance of this. The completeness of our forgiveness is because God did uphold his justice. God did uphold his righteous wrath against sin. God did uphold his righteous requirements in the law. God did uphold his glory and his holy honor of righteousness. But he did it on our behalf by sending another so the completeness of our forgiveness is because the full measure of God's wrath for our real sin was actu and actual sin was fully placed on another. This is the great truth of Christ's substitutionary atonement. This is what David, though he had a more limited knowledge than we have, but this is what he's expressing. That's why Paul could use his argument. This is that I'm justified not because of anything in me, but because of what the Lord would do on my behalf that's 
how I can be forgiven. And for us, we have this more glorious reality, and we can look and say it is because when Christ came, he fulfilled everything that is required of the law, everything that would flow out of a perfect love to God and to neighbor under the conditions of the old covenant. He was born under the law, Paul said, for us, that he might redeem us from the law. And then he fulfilled the requirement of God's justice by bearing our sins. So God, in the counting terms, took our sin and placed it on Christ. And in the language of Paul, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So he took all of our sin and he treated Christ as if he committed all of them. And he treated him that way. And he laid all of that wrath on him. And so Isaiah 53, the father was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then all of Christ's perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his unfailing and perfect obedience to the Father, all of his love, all of his perfect glory of obedience, God imputed to us who have trusted in him. And he says, I'm going to count you as a son who had never sinned. I'm going to treat you that way. I'm going to bring you into the full blessings that my son, who actually obeyed, accomplished and that is the glory of our forgiveness it is the glory of our forgiveness that he himself bore our sins in his own body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that though the blood of bulls and goats in hebrews 10 could never take away sin he did by offering up the body that was given to him as a final sacrifice so that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin it's completed in him and this is both glorious and it is humbling. Justification by faith is humbling because it says when we come before God in truth, grace reminds us that we have nothing that we bring. We bring guilt, we bring iniquity, we bring sin, we bring transgression. What we seek from God is something that we are completely incapable of inciting from him on our own. We ask for grace. And the glory of what he gives us, the glory of what he accomplished for us in Christ, is that he gives it to us completely outside of ourselves. And he says, you know what, I'll forgive you, not because of anything in you, but because of what another has done on your behalf. The reformers used to call that an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of us. That's justification by faith. It's Christ's righteousness that we stand in. But standing in Christ's righteousness means we stand in a forgiveness that is complete and perfect. There's more to say on that. Let me just at least mention this. This is the measure, ultimately, not of our great value, as I, it's so important to be reminded of. It is the measure of God's love for his son, whom he would crush in order to redeem a people for his glory. The measure of his love for us, whom he determined to redeem in the son... The measure of his love for us is that he redeemed us that we might be given to the Son to worship him forever. The measure of his love for us then becomes the measure of his love, the, his love for his Son. Now there's uh, so much here to say, but let me just give you one verse and I'll, I'll have to move on quickly. But let me just give you one verse. So Jesus, when he's praying and he says that 
He's waiting for all of those who were given to him by the Father to come see him in his glory. He says this. He says, I, I want them to be with me. He says, so that the glory which you have given me in John 17, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Listen, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is to say that in the Father's great gift of grace, grace, he adopted us in the Son before the foundation of the world. He sent the Son and the Son came in obedience to the Father to redeem us, to bear the crushing weight of our sin so that he could rise from the dead and bring to himself a people for his own glory, to share in his own love relationship with the Father. That's what it means to be forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be brought by the work of Christ into this relationship, the resounding glory of Christ and our everlasting joy. It was a love that would bear the weight of sin. And so we understand those words, my sin or the bliss of this glorious thought my sin, not in part from the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. If we as Christians grasp the reality of forgiveness, then there is no reason that there should ever be a downtrodden, sad-faced Christians. I mean, we have sadness. There's things in life that are miserable. There's, there's sin in the world that we hate. But we're talking about in the, the foundation of our of our countenance should be one of happiness and thankfulness. We have been redeemed. We've been redeemed. They insult me. I've been redeemed and brought into the kingdom. And all my reward is great. I've lost everything. God upholds me because my sins have been forgiven and I've been reconciled with him. To him. But David gives another part of it here in verses 3 through 4. Here we go. He says in verses 3 through 4, we could summarize this, say it. Happiness comes then from misery relieved. Happiness comes from misery relieved. He says in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So there's a happiness that comes from our sin forgiven, and there's a happiness that comes here from our misery of that sin relieved, taken away. And we again noted that if someone is a true believer in Christ Jesus, then sin wrecks havoc internally. It does. If somebody can sin with impunity and, and can sin and be content as they were whether they had sinned or not, then that draws into question the reality of their faith. When a believer sins, oh yeah, there's a momentary pleasure, and you can be hardened for a while, but God's disciplining hand is going to be on that sinner. The Spirit will not allow that. He sets himself against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. He will make that sinner make you and me miserable in a variety of ways that he can bring that back about, but ultimately internally until that sin is dealt with. In short, what David is saying here is that he was miserable. Whatever veneer of having it together that he may have projected as the king, whatever he may have displayed on the outside, internally he was a wreck. 
He was fraught with a convicted conscience. He was confront with being rejected from a joyful fellowship with the Lord. He was miserable. That may be somebody here tonight. You can come into church. This is why we need to speak truth and deal honestly with one another. You can come in here to church. You can act like you have everything together. And you may, somebody, you can still hide a sin. And inside be wrecked and miserable. While having some kind of facade of everything being okay. David did it. People do it all the time. But God won't allow that to last. Listen to another place. Another one of the, what's known as the penitential Psalms is in Psalm 38. You can just listen to this. And I just tell you how often when I'm under conviction of my sin, uh, I can relate to these words of David myself. They become my words and maybe they become your words as well. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. Your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over greatly and bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed and bowed badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation, the constant roaring and grumbling of my heart. Lord, all my desires before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails, even the light of my eyes, that has gone out from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand afar off. If you're a Christian, you know what he's talking about. If you're a Christian, you know that kind of misery of sin, and particularly when it's a sin you try to hide and you try to keep and you just kind of say, I'll just deal with it or it's not a big deal. You know that kind of misery. You know that kind of agitation of heart. And that's what David is talking about here. I kept silent or I kept silence, more literally, about my sin. And guess what? I was a wreck. I was destroyed. And part of this happiness then comes by the contrast. When I did deal with my sin, there was a relief from that. I was restored to God. I was brought back into his good graces and his fellowship. And it came not because of what he did. It was because God had been gracious to him in his sin. We would come and say, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that was the heart at which David came. Of course, he didn't know about Jesus. But in terms of his sin before God, it was enough that God had provided forgiveness. But let me note something else here. And this is important. And I want to just put this as a footnote. There's something more going on here. And it's this. We, we can say all of what we said. But remember, remember, and particularly if David is referring to the sin that he has been forgiven of, that he acknowledged in Psalm 51, which the scribes have noted for us was a response to his being confronted by the prophet Nathan for a sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, her husband. Then remember this. David did not first seek God. God sought out David. That's incredible mercy. Remember, it wasn't David under all of this conviction. We don't know how long exactly David was under that condition. Probably about a year, roughly, give or take, it's, it's said, generally. 
it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that David was still silent in his sin until God sought him out. The motivation that David had for his confession was God sending the prophet Nathan to confront him and draw it out, to expose his sin. And then left to ourselves, we would far too often remain in our misery rather than come honest about our sin. We would do that. We do do that sometimes. How long have you let yourself continue in misery before you actually deal with your sin before God? David did that. And he was still doing that until God himself finally said, enough is enough. I'm sending you a prophet to expose your sins so that you will repent and be restored. It was an act of the father's love to expose his sin. And let me tell you this. It is an act of the father's love to us to expose our sin. When he brings to us the knowledge of our sin, whether it be through trials which reveal our, what's in our heart, you know, the sponge being squeezed, the trials are like this pressure, the sponge, our heart, what comes out in trials, bitterness, anger, frustration, all of that stuff, the saying, well, that was really there, you just needed the right set of circumstances. Why'd you get so mad? Because that driver cut me off. No, no, you were already proud. You just needed a driver to cut you off to show what was in your heart in the first place, and so on and so forth. When God brings those things in your life that reveal your sin, don't, don't chafe against them. When God brings the rebuke of another, in this case it was Nathan who came to David to rebuke him, directly sent by God. Sometimes God brings people in our lives. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If somebody mentions sin to you, don't reject that. Don't go against that counsel. Take that as God's fatherly expression of his care for you to maybe point something out in your life that you're ignorant to. Be humble and be willing to consider it. Not make all of the excuses by how rude that person was and how they don't get it and how they're such a jerk and so on and so forth. Say to yourself, God might have something for me here. Maybe I am proud. Maybe I do have a pattern of my sin in my life that I, that I haven't seen. And praise God that he puts people who love us enough in our life to tell us those things. Hopefully graciously. Sometimes not, but we accept that too. But hopefully graciously to come and caringly tell us that, that's one of the greatest ministries that we have to our life, and I'll just say this again, that we neglect to give to each other. Now, we're not censorious and looking for everybody, every little sin, of course. We're not talking about that kind of legalistic attitude. We're not talking about that kind of holier than that kind of self-righteousness. We're not talking about that. But we're just saying that when out of genuine love for somebody, when out of genuine concern, we see a pattern of sin in their life or something, and we don't go to them, we're robbing them of a blessing that God may have for them to help them. And if I would be uh, very upset if I thought there were patterns of sin in my life and nobody would come and tell me, I want, we want to invite that. And so here it is with David. David wasn't seeking God. So he, we have here that he did repent in the joy of it. But remember that it was God seeking him. And God sought him by sending to him a prophet to expose his sin. And David's heart, because he really did want to know the Lord, immediately responded with confession. And so that brings to a third quick note under this point. The key to experiencing grace is confession. Confession unlocks the storehouse of grace. This is what he says in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. 
He talks about saying the blessedness of the forgiven one, how miserable it was to be silent about his sin, and what was the key that brought about the change? What was the event on which the, the whole situation hinged? And it was his confession. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He played no games. He didn't minimize it. He didn't partially confess, mostly confess. He fully and completely confessed. And what he found was that every sin that he could possibly think of and acknowledge to God, when he brought it to him, what he found, it was met with grace. Forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive you. How could we not want to know that kind of forgiveness? And yet this is what David experienced. This is what every Christian experiences. Everybody who comes to him. Nobody, no sinner, no matter what has been done, that sincerely comes to God with a godly sorrow, not the worldly sorrow that we mentioned, but a godly sorrow, you will every single time be met with a gracious father who's forgiven and wants to usher you back into his good joy. Every single time. That's mercy. That's grace. I confess my sin and you forgave the guilt of it. It's in Proverbs 28, he says, the foolishness of the one who conceals it. But the one who prospers is the one who goes to him. And this is the place of happiness and it's the place of wisdom. And let's look at this briefly. Verses 6 through 11. And note, second point, the wisdom of forgiveness. There's the blessedness of the forgiven, and then there's the wisdom of the forgiven. And first, notice this, that the wise seek God immediately. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when he may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David now steps into the role of teacher, and some have even made the comment to uh, talking about this passage, that this is really kind of the fulfillment of what he was praying for in Psalm 51. I think it's verse 13, somewhere around there, where he says, And then I will teach transgressors your way. And, and so maybe this is the fruit of that. Now he's saying, now I'm teaching. I'm stepping again into the role of teacher and saying, let me tell you from my own experience what I know of God. Let me teach you about his ways. Let me help you to walk wisely before God. He seeks to draw out an appeal to all under the conviction of sin, not to neglect the opportunity of confession and forgiveness and restoration. Again, don't kick against what God is doing in your life to humble you, particularly if it's exposing sin. Go to Him. There's an echo here of God's own words through the prophet Isaiah. You can just Write this down, but Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And what will you find? Judgment, a thumb squashing you down. He says, no, what will you find? He will have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Again, you will never find anything at the end of your confession and your repentance from God but grace, mercy. That's how he's chosen to deal with us. Now, the second part of verse 6 here, he says, so that's the idea of let them pray to you in a time when you may be found. When may he be found? Whenever you turn to him till the end of this age. But he says here at the second part, surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. 
What does he mean here? Well, there's really a couple of ways that you could take this. There's really a couple of ways you could take this. And, I, and I'll even tell you, I was, I was corrected in a way. I, I kind of come out on another side of how I had kind of always read this, uh, just looking at it more closely. But I'll tell you, there's two ways. Some hold that David is saying it this. Pray to the Lord in confession. Even when trials come, you will find yourself to be secure in him and safe, reconciled. So when trials or when judgment comes, the idea of the flood of great waters. A second way to take this is this. It could be read this way. Pray to the Lord in confession while you are able. For when severe trials come and overtake him, you may forget him and find that it's too late. So one, the second one then would act as a warning and the other would act as a word of assurance. They're both biblically true statements and can be supported from Scripture. But most likely, and I think the best understood here, and it is actually the most commonly way, common way that it's understood, is that he means the first option. And it's this. Those who confess their sin to the Lord will find themselves secure and grounded in him. As he'll say in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. And so that when trials or judgments come on the earth, there's ways you can understand that water, or even maybe implying the final judgments, as some want to see it. But the point is, is when these things come, the forgiven sinner will find themselves secure in him. They will not reach him then as referring to the waters. These waters of judgment, these waters of trial. They won't reach him. They won't overtake him. He'll be secure. It's very much like what was mentioned earlier, I think, out of John, the end of Matthew 7, when he says the winds, they came, the storms, they came, and the one who built his house upon the rock, on the solid faith in God and in a righteous, obedient life would still stand at the end of it. The one who built on sand, who was a hypocrite, merely religion on the outside, will fall. And so David is here saying, then you'll find yourself secure when these things come. You'll find yourself secure. The idea then is this, the forgiven one, having come to the Lord with sin, tasted of his redeeming grace, has no fear of judgment and trial. In Christ, we have been covered and protected. Let me just mention this verse. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says this, Speaking to the church, I can, I can kind, of, kind of picks up this idea. He says that we are those who, he says, you are those who have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. And then he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us, delivers us from the wrath to come. We sang it this morning then, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power so that when those times come, I am kept safe in that rock. How sweet is the grace of God. Verse 7, you are a hiding place when we know the Lord in that way. And so many, there's a note here, don't experience this grace, again, because there's an unwillingness to go through the valley of humility. There's an unwillingness to go through the valley of humility, unwilling to go through the process of being brought low. We're so, sometimes our flesh is just so persistent, uh, persistent about wanting to defend ourselves, wanting to somehow defend our own honor, 
defend our, the way we look in others' eyes, even almost before God sometimes. But when we are brought low as we should be, then we can know this kind of grace. But we're never going to get there as long as we minimize or hide or try to somehow just defend our own righteousness or our own honor. We won't get there, but we can get there through humility and have, as he says here, songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance. And that deliverance is a foretaste, by the way, of the overwhelming joy that all of us in this room who know his forgiveness will experience on that day we stand before him. Because you and I will stand before him. That's not an idea. That's not a religious theory. It is a reality. The physical, glorious, risen, and exalted Christ, you and I will stand before him. He will be before us, and we will be in the light of his majestic holiness and glory. And the writer of Jude, or Jude, says it in this way. That he is the one then who is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We have joy now when we have forgiveness. Can you imagine standing in the blazing light of the exalted and risen Christ and all of his holiness and his majesty and you knowing your own sin and your own corruption and your own failing? You think your wife or friends know about your sin? Stand before the eyes of his who has eyes that burn like fire, who is omniscient in his glory, and you stand before him who knows everything. He even knows sins and guilts that you've forgotten about and that you're not even aware of. As Paul said, I'm not even aware of what's in my conscience. And it's all right before him. And instead of fear and instead of judgment that we know we deserve, he says, you're blameless. I count you as blameless. Enter into the joy of your master. Blameless. Does that ever hit you? I can remember one time that hit me with great joy. I, don't even, I can't even fathom the kind of joy that will fill the heart of the redeemed to stand before the glorious Christ, to stand before the glory of the Father and the presence of the Spirit in that majestic way. And he goes blameless. And you go, I'm not blameless. Are you kidding me? I'm as guilty as they come. And God says, no, blameless. Blameless. Why? Because of you? Certainly not because of you. Because in my son, I've counted you that way. I've made you that way. And I love my son. And now you come and enter into the joy of my son. And Christ says, come and share with me everything that I've purchased for you for my glory. And when we as believers can grasp that, we can have what David prays here, this kind of happiness. And we can have the wisdom that says, I don't want to hold on to my sin. I don't want to hide it. I don't want to make excuses. I want to deal with it so that I can know this grace, so that I can know this forgiveness. Let's look at this very quickly, lastly, in verse 8. The wise submit to God then before God has to discipline them. He says, look, I'm going to instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This could be David or God speaking. Some have a capital N, my I. Some have a small N. I'm not even going to go into that. But it is to say this, the idea, the wisdom that's being communicated here is saying, look, in verse 9, don't be as the horse or a mule. Don't be as a dumb beast which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they won't come to you. Don't be like a dumb mule and a horse who needs a bit in his mouth to cause pain so he'll go the way that his rider wants. He says, don't do that. It's stupid. 
It's spiritually foolish. In other words, be submitted to the Lord. Deal with your sin. Come to him. Don't wait for him to discipline you. And if you think you're going to get away with it, remember the words of Numbers 32. It says this, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. It'll find you out. Oh, he may tolerate it and be patient for a while, but it'll eventually find you out. And he's saying, don't do that. Come to the Lord submissively, obediently. Don't wait for him to bring misery and complications and shame and conflict, ruin of relationships and all of these consequences of sin. Don't wait for that. Just come to him before. Sometimes it's wise to say, look, I want to confess my sin just because I don't want his discipline. Not the best motive, but it's a real one. I just don't want to be disciplined. Well, okay. Go to him and be wise. And at the end, what will it produce? Verse 11, or even at the verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And that's the, the wise then, the last point, sing to God in righteousness. And there it is. That is the attitude that we are to display if we've known this forgiveness. The one who's tasted the bitterness of sin, the miseries of heart, being distant and cold to the Lord, and have experienced in that confession, confessing that forgiveness and restoration. There's deep gratitude, sincere praise, commitment to righteousness, and guess what? Spiritual happiness. Spiritual happiness and stability. And so we would do wise and be wise to listen to these instructions and live honestly before the Lord and know the, the joy that he has for all those who trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a part of that and you're part of the wicked category still, then all I can say is your sorrows will be many. Now is the day of salvation to appeal to him, to cry to him, to ask him for forgiveness, and you will find him to be faithful to his promises. Let me pray, and then we'll do a song, and uh, we'll get, hear Bill's testimony here from baptism. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a gracious God. We are a guilty and a sinful people, and yet we are met with a creator that has determined to offer forgiveness. And you never fail. Sin offers pleasure, and it certainly delivers a pleasure for a moment. But in the end, it leads to death. You offer to us forgiveness. You offer and promise to us a happiness that is enduring. And if we believe your words, we won't find you to be deceitful but true. And in fact, the happiness and the blessedness that we'll know is greater than what we even expected. So help us to believe your promises. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you. Keep us from the foolishness of sin. And when we do sin, make us to be quick repenters and not to hold on to it and conceal it, but bring it to you to be restored and to walk in the freshness and the glory of grace in Christ. Thank you for your mercy to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.